welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Belshazzar called in his advisors, who claimed they could talk with the spirits of the dead and understand the meanings found in the stars. Belshazzar told them, The man who can read this writing will become the third most powerful man in my kingdom. Daniel, chapter 5, verse 7, Contemporary English Version. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay, and I want to welcome you to Angered by Truth. Anchored by Truth is brought to you by Crystal Sea Books because we have a passion for wanting everyone to reawaken the life-giving truth that is found only in the pages of the Bible. The Bible is the only book in the world that provides God's special revelation to mankind and contains the good news of salvation that is available through Christ Jesus. Today we are going to continue our series that we are calling Archaeology and the Bible. The Bible is a book that is firmly set in place and time. It contains a significant amount of history and, despite the doubts of some critics, the history contained in the Bible is accurate and reliable. And one way that reliability of the Bible's history has been demonstrated is through archaeologic finds and artifacts. So, to help us continue our discussion today, in the studio we have R.D. Fierro, who is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., can you give us a brief summary of the points that we have made thus far in our Archaeology and the Bible series? Sure. But before I do that, I'd also like to welcome everyone to Anchored by Truth today. We're so glad that you're joining us. We hope that these episodes are helpful to you. We hope that these episodes help you understand that the Bible is a book that can be trusted, that the Bible is God's special revelation. Well, as you just mentioned, our passion at Crystal Sea Books is to help people either connect or reconnect with the Bible as an essential part of their life. You know, until relatively recently, for hundreds of years in fact, people have recognized that the Bible is a source of immeasurable value both for life and success in life. I mean, President Theodore Roosevelt once said that, and I'm quoting, a thorough knowledge of the Bible is worth more than a college education, close quote. Now imagine that. President Roosevelt esteemed the Bible so highly that he knew that the wisdom and the help that the Bible would provide people was worth more than a college education. Well, if that was true in Roosevelt's day, imagine how much more it's true in our day. What Roosevelt recognized is that the Bible is a unique book because the Bible imparts not only knowledge, but wisdom. And that is a point that is often missing in our technologically obsessed culture. We have more facts and data at our fingertips, literally in our pockets and purses, than any generation in history. Yet, as important as some of that information may be, it does surprisingly little to contribute to wisdom. In fact, in some cases, it seems like the more information we can command, the less wisdom we choose to absorb. And sadly, I agree with you. Our smartphones can tell us every address on the planet and how to get to them. 
But our smartphones do precious little to help us get to the most important place in all of creation, and that's heaven. And what good would it do us to have visited every amazing sight or attraction on earth if we don't ensure that we are steadily on course for heaven as we travel through the world's highways and byways? Exactly. As that quote from Teddy Roosevelt tells us, the way we can be really smart with our smartphones is to use them to give us immediate access to the Bible. But nobody is going to be motivated to read the Bible, whether it's on a phone or a computer or paper or however, if they aren't convinced that the Bible has important things to say to them. And for them to be convinced that the Bible has something important to say, they must believe that the Bible is true. I saw a yard sign the other day that said, Read Banned Books. Ironically, the book most banned in today's culture is the Bible. It's not permitted in government-run schools, and it's excluded from a lot of government buildings. At one time, Bethesda Naval Hospital wanted to keep visitors from bringing Bibles into the hospital as part of comforting wounded soldiers. A lot of social service programs are prohibited from mentioning the Bible as part of treating people with substance abuse or mental health problems. I doubt the person who had the sign in their yard realizes that in putting that sign up, they are actually encouraging Bible readership. Right. But as an old boss of mine used to say, it's better to light a candle than curse the darkness. So the candle that we want to light here in Anchored by Truth is the candle that stands in front of an open Bible. And that's the reason we wanted to take a few episodes of Anchored by Truth and talk about archaeology. There have been so many archaeological finds down through history that have confirmed the accuracy of the history that is contained in the Bible, even when that history the Bible contains has been doubted by the secular world. And already in this series, we've covered a number of specific examples of that, that the Bible's history has been proven accurate by archaeological discoveries. Well, today we wanted to provide another example, another instance, where secular historians doubted names contained in the Bible, but where the existence of those names has now been confirmed. In our last episode, we talked about the fact that when a historian gets names and titles right, it increases our confidence that the historian is reporting history accurately. And in our last episode, we showed that the Bible not only gets the names and titles of major historical figures right, but it is also accurate with less prominent people and government officials. We are going to continue that theme today. Where do you want to start? Well, let's take a look at one of the best-known stories in the Bible, the story of the handwriting on the wall. You know, even though this episode is well-known to most people, very little people know much about the principal human player in the story, who is Belshazzar. We heard about Belshazzar in our opening scripture. He was a Babylonian ruler who was reigning in Babylon at the time the Babylonians fell to the combined armies of the Medes and the Persians, who were being led by the Persian king Cyrus. The story is found in the book of Daniel, chapter 5. Belshazzar was hosting a banquet for nobles and the royal officials, and all of them were getting drunk. At one point in the festivities, the king ordered his servants to bring out the sacred vessels that had been brought to Babylon when the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem. The Babylonians took all the gold and silver serving cups and vessels from the temple and carried them back to Babylon. There they put them in the royal treasury. 
On this occasion, the king appears to have wanted to remind everyone of the glorious history of the Babylonian Empire, so he commanded the vessels to be brought out for use in their drunken revel. Yes. So, most people know the next part of the story, as Belshazzar and the Babylonians are committing sacrilege with the temple's treasures, a giant man's hand appears in their midst and begins writing on the wall. Now, it's important to note that no one is saying that that giant man's hand was the hand of God. It's just a huge hand that God caused to appear in the midst of that Babylonian celebration. Nobody's asserting that that's actually God's hands, and that's kind of something some people get confused about. God just made this hand appear in the midst of that drunken revelry and start writing on the wall. And the hand writes four words, but no one in the room knows how to interpret them. So Belshazzar announces that if they can find anyone who can read the words and interpret them, Belshazzar will make that person the third most important person in the empire. Now, it's very important to note that Belshazzar did not offer to make that person the second most important person in the empire, but the third most important person in the empire. That is a strange detail. Why make someone the third most important person in a kingdom? That just seems like a very strange way to offer a reward. And from archaeology, we now know why Belshazzar framed his offer that way. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. For many years, secular historians thought that this story from the book of Daniel was fictional because they asserted that the book of Daniel got the name of the Babylonian king wrong. And that's because it was well known from history that the last king of Babylon, before they were conquered by the Medes and the Persians, was Nabonidus. Now, historians are somewhat uncertain as to how Nabonidus actually ascended to the throne of Babylon. He wasn't in the lineage of the Babylonian royal family. He seems to have had some kind of a prominent career before he became king, and many scholars believe that he had married a daughter or a granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, who is certainly the most famous of all the Babylonian kings. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar himself is prominently featured in the early part of the book of Daniel. Well, one thing that does seem to be clear is that Nabonidus' elevation to becoming the king was as big a surprise to him as it was to others. Well, notwithstanding his unlikely ascension to the throne, Nabonidus was well known enough as the last king of Babylon to have history remember his name. But the same thing was not true for his son, Belshazzar. Secular history forgot about Belshazzar for centuries, but the Bible never did. And for anyone who hasn't read the book of Daniel, or read it in a while, we'd recommend picking it up tonight. Daniel is the fourth of the major prophets, but also the shortest. The entire book is only 12 chapters, and the book is easy to read. The first six chapters are history, and contain some of the best-known stories in the Bible, like Daniel in the lion's den the three Hebrews thrown into a fiery furnace, and the handwriting on the wall. The last six chapters are all prophetic, and they contain an unparalleled demonstration that Daniel was given accurate prophetic information about events hundreds of years into the future. You think Daniel is one of the most important books of the Old Testament, don't you? I do. All the books of the Bible are important, but not all books of the Bible are equally consumable by modern readers. 
I don't want to start ranking books of the Bible. They're all important. But I would highly recommend that everyone become very familiar with the Old Testament books of Genesis, Psalms, Isaiah, and Daniel. Because if you become familiar with those books, at least you'll have a very cursory understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament. And frankly, you can't understand the New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. I mean, I think everyone should read the entire Old Testament. I try to make it a habit to read through the entire Bible once a year. I've done that for years, and I think that's a good habit to get into. But I understand that a lot of people, that a lot of Christians in our day and age, have never really had much contact with the Old Testament. But if they haven't, I'd really suggest that those people get in touch with, at a minimum, the books of Genesis, Psalms, Isaiah, and Daniel. They really need to become familiar with those books. But let's get back to Belshazzar and archaeology. Yes, let's. So, until the 19th century, so far as secular history was concerned, Belshazzar didn't exist. But in 1854, four clay cylinders with identical inscriptions were excavated from the ruins of the ancient city of Ur. These clay cylinders were subsequently named the Nabonidus Cylinders. And in these Nabonidus Cylinders, they contained a prayer from Nabonidus to the moon god, and that prayer was for, quote, Belshazzar, the eldest son, my offspring, close quote. So, in 1854, Belshazzar's existence was confirmed as Nabonidus' firstborn son and the heir to his throne. But the confirmation of the biblical account didn't end there, did it? Nope. In 1882, a translation of another ancient cuneiform text, the Nabonidus Chronicle, was also published. And we learn from the Nabonidus Chronicle that Nabonidus was mostly an absentee king as far as Babylon was concerned. He spent 10 years of his 17-year reign living in Arabia, which was about 450 miles from the city of Babylon. Well, when he left Babylon, Nabonidus left Belshazzar in charge. And we know that Nabonidus was accustomed to putting Belshazzar in charge of Babylon during his absence because there is a Persian account of Nabonidus that was published in 1924 that stated that, quote, he started out for a long journey. Nabonidus entrusted the kingship to his oldest son, the firstborn, close quote. So, we know that part of his pattern when he was away from Babylon was to put his son Belshazzar in charge while he's gone. And furthermore, there are other ancient cuneiform texts that were found in the early 1900s which also mention Belshazzar, including a tablet from the ancient city of Erech in which both Belshazzar and Nabonidus were jointly invoked in an oath. Well, that only happened with royal figures, so the fact that Nabonidus and Belshazzar were jointly invoked in an oath suggests that they both had royal authority. So, Belshazzar was used to functioning in the role of a king while his father was away. So, not only do the Nabonidus chronicles refer to Belshazzar as the crown prince, they also tell us that Nabonidus was away from the city of Babylon when it fell to the Medo-Persians. Two days before the handwriting actually appeared on the wall, Nabonidus had fled from the Persians because he was defeated at Sippar. This engagement between the Medo-Persians and Nabonidus, the Babylonians, is sometimes called the Battle of Opus. So, Belshazzar was the highest authority in Babylon at the time that Babylon was captured by the Medes and the Persians, just as chapter 5 of the book of Daniel describes. 
But the confirmation of the biblical account didn't end there, did it? The detail about the war between the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians isn't in the Bible, but it does help us to better understand the events of chapter 5 of Daniel, doesn't it? Belshazzar's father had just suffered a major defeat, and he undoubtedly knew that Cyrus was headed for Babylon itself. The walls of Babylon were considered to be impregnable, so he wouldn't have thought the city was in real danger. While ancient estimates vary, the walls of Babylon were probably at least 25 feet thick and possibly as much as 80 feet thick. Some ancient reporters said you could drive two chariot teams abreast across the top of the walls. Belshazzar's father probably thought Cyrus would just exhaust himself trying to get past the walls. So he moved off to a safe distance to recover and rebuild his army. But Babylon wasn't safe because the Almighty God had previously told the Babylonians he would bring about their defeat. And that message was being given to the Babylonians because that's what the handwriting on the wall said, even though the king and his guests were initially confused about the writing. And the confusion may have been because the language the words were written in was a language that the king and the guests couldn't read. Some scholars believe that the words were not written in Aramaic script, but in a sort of non-human script, and then Daniel was given a special ability to read that script. But a lot of scholars believe that the words most likely were written in Aramaic because that was the language that was used for official Babylonian government purposes. But it is very possible that the words, even if they were written in Aramaic, were written without vowels or word separations. And if that was the way they were presented, well, all the king and the audience would have seen was just a long string of consonants, and they may not have known how to separate that string into individual words. Well, at any rate, they didn't have to wonder too long about the string, because once Daniel arrived, he immediately read the message. And the New Living Translation puts verse 25 of chapter 5 of the book of Daniel this way, quote, This is the message that was written, minne, minne, tekel, and parson, close quote. Now, in their ordinary usage, these words are all monetary weights. But that word string still might not have made much sense to the king. The God's Word translation puts verse 25 of Daniel chapter 5 this way, quote, This is what has been written, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided, unquote. So even from the translation, we can see it was a strange message. Even if the king and the guests could read the words, it's no wonder they were confused about what it meant. But, once again, the king didn't have to wonder too long, because in addition to just reading the words, Daniel also told the king what those words meant. The God's Word translation says verse 26 through 28 say, quote, This is its meaning. Numbered. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and will bring it to an end. Weighed. You have been weighed on a scale and found to be too light. Divided. Your kingdom will be divided and given to the Medes and Persians, unquote. So the basic message to Belshazzar and his drunken friends was clear. Your time as rulers of your world is over. But there is no way his father could have known that he was retreating to lick his wounds. His father probably thought the city of Babylon was safe because it always had been. Probably. So the situation that was described in chapter 5 of Daniel makes perfect sense based on what we now know from the Bible and the other historical sources we've been talking about. 
Belshazzar's father, Nabonidus, had suffered a major defeat at the hands of the Persian king, Cyrus, at Sippar. And the Babylonian nobles who weren't with Nabonidus at that battle fled into Babylon because they were thinking they would be safe behind its impenetrable walls. Well, of course, these nobles are all stressed out because they all knew about the big loss to the Persians. So, in order to relieve their stress, put everybody in a better mood, Belshazzar, the reigning king in Babylon at the time, decides to have a party, and everyone at the party gets drunk. So Belshazzar's father is off recovering. Belshazzar and the Babylonian elites want to forget their troubles by getting drunk. And in the midst of their drunken revelry, Belshazzar decides to remind everyone of their former victories by having the servants bring out the temple vessels from the conquest of Jerusalem. Everything looked great, right up until the moment the giant hand appears and tells them the party is over. And it was. History records that the fall of Babylon was sudden and dramatic. Many historians believe that what the Persians did to get past the impregnable walls was to divert the flow of the Euphrates River, which ran under the walls and supplied Babylon with water, even if a siege was taking place. And the Greek historian Xenophon gives us an account of the fall of Babylon, which very closely tracks many of the elements that are found in the biblical account. Xenophon says that the attacking Persians found that when they entered the city, there was revelry taking place everywhere. There was so much revelry that it was causing so much noise that the noise of the attackers was partially mixed in with the noise of the big party celebration that's taking place. Xenophon also tells us that the attacking Persians were able to overcome the Babylonian defenders so quickly because the Babylonian defenders didn't even realize that they were under attack. And, in all the confusion that was taking place in the city, some of the attacking Persian soldiers were able to get into the palace and kill the king. Well, we now know that when those Persian soldiers attacked into the palace and killed the king, that the king was killed was not Nabonidus, but was actually Belshazzar. And the fact that the kingly figure who was present in Babylon when the Persians conquered the city was Belshazzar explains that particular detail we pointed out earlier. Belshazzar served as king in his father's absence, but Belshazzar was not the king. He was not number one in the kingdom. He was number two. So when he wanted to offer a reward to someone who could read the handwriting on the wall, he could only offer to make them number three, which is what he did offer. And the Bible faithfully captured this seemingly odd detail. In this instance of the handwriting on the wall, the Bible got all the big things right. The Persians did suddenly and completely overwhelm the Babylonian defenses. I mean, even the Greek historians recorded that. Well, one reason the Persians were able to overcome the Babylonian defenders is because, frankly, the people who should have been defending the city were all drunk and incapacitated. And Xenophon and the Bible agree on that. And we know that the Babylonian Empire ceased to exist when Babylon fell because the fall of Babylon just allowed the whole empire to be absorbed into the Medo-Persian Empire, and that empire would last for the next 250 years. So those are the big parts of the story, and the Bible preserves the big parts of the story, and so do secular historical records. But the Bible preserved two key smaller parts of the story that were lost to secular history until the archaeological finds of the 19th century. Secular history forgot that it was Belshazzar who was killed that night. And, of course, secular history did not record that as Belshazzar was trying to comprehend a miraculous message, the best thing he could offer was the third position in the kingdom. 
So just for a second, let's think back to the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph was also able to do some interpretation for a king, the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh was the ruler of Egypt at the time. Well, in response to Joseph interpreting a dream for Pharaoh, Pharaoh was able to make Joseph the second most powerful man in Egypt. The Pharaoh could do that because the Pharaoh was the first most powerful man in Egypt. Pharaoh was number one, so he could make Joseph number two, and he did. Well, Belshazzar was already the second most powerful man in Babylon. So the best he could do when he offered his reward was to make someone the third most powerful person, and that's what he did. So the fact that the story of the handwriting on the wall preserves this seemingly almost incidental detail, it's not only fascinating, but it also helps confirm when the book of Daniel was written. How is that? Well, the critics of the book of Daniel like to assert that the book of Daniel was not written in the 6th century BC when all these events took place. Because if Daniel was written in the 6th century BC, that would mean the book of Daniel contains undeniably accurate prophecies. And that would prove that it was divinely inspired. Well, that's something that the critics have to try to prevent at all costs. So the critics assert that Daniel was written in the 1st or 2nd century BC. That way it would mean that whoever was writing the book of Daniel would have been writing history, not prophecy. But as we've talked about sometimes on Anchored by Truth, in the 1st or 2nd century BC, Israel, Egypt, and the entire Mideast for that matter, had been under the dominion of the Greeks for over 200 years. Well, there's no way that a Hebrew writer at that time would have preserved a detail so insignificant as Belshazzar only offering the third position in the empire as his reward. I mean, someone writing a pious fraud, even if they had known the details of the Babylonian system of governments, they would have had no use for that detail in their story. If they were just going to tell the tale of God's judgment on the Babylonians by means of the Medes and Persians, the fiction writer wouldn't have gained anything for their pious, fraudulent narrative by inserting a detail like that. That would only cast doubt on the story. Think back to the story of Joseph. A fiction writer would have gained a lot more credit for their fiction if they had made Daniel a parallel figure to Joseph. Making Daniel a parallel figure to Joseph would have made a lot more sense to someone who is writing fiction. Making Daniel only the third most important person would have just been confusing to their readers. But a writer who is writing contemporaneously with the events that they were recording and writing an accurate history would get the details right. And that is what we wanted to point out in this episode and in this series. But as archaeologists have spent time in the territory described by the Bible, quite often records or artifacts come to light that confirm the Bible's accounts. Well, this sounds like a great time to pray. Today, let's listen to a prayer for our communities and nations would repent of our departure from the worship of the one true God. The Babylonians would have been far better off to confess their sins to the one true God than mocking him by drinking from vessels stolen from his temple. Prayer of Corporate Confession Father, perfect in justice, holy in all ways, we stand before you to declare that we know you are a great, powerful, and just God. 
Before time began marking the rise, decline, and coming renewal of creation, you established the laws to govern all seasons and creatures. Your laws are perfect because you are perfect. Lord, we acknowledge today that we have sinned and fallen short of your expectations. We know that we have done this of our own volition, that our transgressions are not caused by anything that you have done or failed to do. As you forgive us, help us to freely forgive those who offend us when they ask for pardon. Let us embrace our brothers and sisters with repentant hearts as readily as you embrace us. We can only do so by knowing the gracious love that you brought to us when Christ came and died for us. He tore apart the veil between your people and you, sent the Spirit to refresh our souls, and so it is in his precious name that we ask for mercy, pardon, and a readiness to serve you. Amen. Is the Bible important in your life? Supporting Anchored by Truth with a contribution is an easy way to put your faith into action. The opportunity to help is available at crystalseabooks.com. How wonderful would it be for Jesus to commend us because we made His Word a priority in our lives and giving. We are grateful for your support and partnership. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage friends to tune in also or to listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com where We're not perfect, but our boss is. And for those of you who need that website one more time, that's crystalseabooks.com. Crystal, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-C-S-E-A, and books, B-O-O-K-S, Thank you for your support.